0: Well, welcome to the hills and whether you're present at the NRH campus or you're uh, watching live stream at South Lake campus or West Fort Worth campus or watching online, I'm so glad you're joining us today. And if you are watching us online somewhere around the world, you might be enjoying something we don't know anything about here in Texas. It's called fall. We don't have fall. We just have summer with pumpkins and I am worn out. I am so tired of being so hot. Okay, so I saw on my weather app that fall weather might show up this coming week. Please pray that it does because it's beating me down and giving me a bad attitude. It showed up recently. I was on a run. Now, you know, that runners like to have what they call the kick at the end, a little extra in the tank, and they finish strong. I was having the battle of the mind, trying to convince myself that I had something in the tank and that I could have a kick, and it just wasn't happening. I was losing the battle of the mind. And then a few moments later, a large black snake slithered across my path, I found something in the tank. (laughs) For the next 200 yards, I look like Usain Bolt, okay? Because as I've told you before, I absolutely hate snakes. I hate three kinds of snakes. I hate big snakes. I hate little snakes. I hate sticks that look like snakes. I really, really hate snakes. In fact, if you were to ask me, would you ever have a world without cats or without snakes? I still think I'd choose a world without cats, but I really do hate snakes. And I think my hatred has a theological basis. So an apostle named John is exiled on the island. He's writing to churches under great pressure from the Roman Empire to call Caesar. Lord. And John gets a revelation and he shares with them some of the visions that he had. And he wants them to know that the pressure they're experiencing and the evil they're undergoing has a backstory. That there's a scene behind the scene. John talks about a war that took place in heaven. And here's what he says. The great dragon was hurled down. That ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. Now, I recognize every week some come to hear me preach that may not believe the story of Jesus yet. I am so honored that you're here. You need to know that what you're going to hear today is a distinctly Christian worldview. That every culture wrestles with the problem of evil. And for two thousand years the consistent historic Christian reply has been the evil problem is ultimately a devil problem. Okay, there I said it. It's right out on the table. I believe in a being sometimes called Satan. That in the Bible, evil is not just a construct or a principle. Evil is a personality. And that's why we here in Ephesians 6, for example, we're fighting not against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. Evil has a name. Evil is a person. I recognize that in the Western world, this particular worldview is often dismissed. But you understand, in most of the world, it's believed. And I've been in parts of the world where if you can't preach a Jesus that is stronger than the spirits, you don't have good news to preach. Do you understand this was the worldview of the early church? Every single New Testament author mentions the devil. Jesus did 25 times, not to placate the superstitions of the illiterate, but because he actually believed in a real malevolent personality that he came to vanquish. That the one who had been banished was now to be vanquished. So we're in this series, Kingdom Come. Asking the question every week, why did the king come? And one of our answers is found in 1 John 3. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. Now, we laud Jesus as our deliverer, and he is. But understand that before he could be our deliverer, he had to be a destroyer. He had to conquer before he could deliver. And that's something about Jesus we often miss that I personally find very, very captivating. So, let me tell you on my all-time favorite movie scenes. A wicked, illegitimate Caesar says to a soldier, remove your helmet and tell me your name. And the soldier slowly takes the helmet off and with stern, bold courage he looks straight at the man and he says, Maximus Decimus Meridius, commander of the armies of the north, general of the Felix legions, royal servant of the true emperor Marcus Aurelius, father to a murdered son, husband to a murdered wife, and I will have my vengeance in this life or the next. Who said that? Come on, you know, don't you? It's the gladiator. If you didn't know, we have a prayer team at the end of this service, and you can come forward, and we will help you, okay? And there's a reason we resonate. With stories like this, that when we see a noble champion, a man or a woman who is willing to walk right up to the face of evil and say no more, we find ourselves exhilarated. Now, I want you to start thinking of Jesus more and more this way. That the Gospels don't depict Jesus as trying to avoid the devil, but as trying to pursue him. For example, the temptation narrative, it says the Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. He went out to the front line, to the trenches, to meet the enemy. Um, One time, Jesus is on a boat, and they get to the other side. They come to a shore, and they find out they've landed at a cemetery, and it's dark, and a naked dude full of demons is running around screaming, I ain't getting off the boat. But Jesus did because he's pursuing the enemy. In other words, he came to take the battle to the enemy. And the enemy knew he was coming. So, for example, in Luke chapter four, Jesus is in the synagogue and a man who has a demon speaks up. You say, wait a second. How could a man with a demon be at church? Trust me, it can happen, okay? And here's what the man says. Go away! What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. The Holy One of God. They knew He was coming. You have another story in Matthew 8. This time, two different men filled with demons speak and say... What do you want with us, Son of God? Have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? See, they knew the mission. The evil spirits knew Jesus was coming to destroy them. Because it had been predicted by God all the way back at the start of your Bible in Genesis 3. When God speaks to the serpent after the introduction of sin. And God says to that serpent of that woman, Now she will have seed, and you will strike his heel, and he will crush your head. And so I want you to see that Bethlehem was D-Day. The birth of Jesus was heaven's counter-offensive, and Jesus came into enemy territory to turn the tide of the battle. So when you read in the Gospels of a healing, Or of an exorcism. These were acts of war. Before he could be a deliverer, he had to be a destroyer. To rescue. He had to destroy the works of the devil. And what specifically did he destroy? Let's let's go on a journey and think about that for a moment. I'm gonna say first, he destroyed the devil's work by exposing lies. Because from the beginning, Satan's chief tactic has been to deceive. Listen to Jesus' own words about his enemy. John 8. He's always hated the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, it is consistent with his character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Let me tell you the chief strategy of the devil. And you deal with it every single day and may not even be aware of it. He wants to take untruth and so normalize it that it becomes commonly accepted wisdom. And so we walk in deception and don't even realize we are being deceived. Our culture just accepts as true some things that are actually lies. Like, the truth is relative. There is no higher truth. We all decide what's true for us. And I should be able to do anything I want to do to make me happy. Because my happiness is the highest purpose of life. And the one with the most toys, when he dies, wins. And you are just a cosmic accident. And you have no ultimate purpose as far as this universe is concerned. And things like this are just commonly accepted. And they destroy. They produce addictions. And despair. And anxieties. They tear up families. And we just accept it as normal. Dr. Bennett Amalu. Was the surgeon. Who. Doing an autopsy on the brain of Mike Webster, a former NFL All-Pro center for the Pittsburgh Steelers, was appalled to see a brain that looked as if it was afflicted with Alzheimer's. And he came to the conclusion that it was because of the repeated blows to the head that Mike Webster had in his career. He's the one who... Uh, Came up with the phrase. Chronic traumatic encephalopathy. C-T-E. That if you keep. Having blows to the head. It will destroy the brain. He said it's like taking concrete. And pouring it into plumbing. And over time it will harden. And clog the mind. And this is the strategy of the enemy. To sow. Constantly, consistently pound your head with untruth that you become unable to be illuminated by spiritual direction. That's why another movie, another great noble champion spoke truth when he said before battle of fist must come battle of Mind. Who said that? This guy, Kung Fu Panda. Come on. You see, the devil has something in mind for you. And Jesus has something in mind for you. Jesus came to teach you how to love God with all your Mine, and he did so by constantly exposing commonly held lies so when you read the gospels and you read the teachings of Jesus I want you to notice how he would often say these little things that were actually stunningly radical like can all your worries add a single moment to your life now that's the truth no we don't believe it that's why we fret and worry And stew so much. But it's true. Or a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Now, we don't live like that's true. But have you ever been to a funeral where we told you what the person's net worth was? We live like we believe we should do to people like they do to us. Jesus said, do to people like you would like them to do to you. So if you aren't sure if you believe the Jesus story, could I just challenge you? Read his teachings and take them out for a test drive. And just see if they ring true. And if you are a follower of Jesus, I would challenge you, perhaps start reading the Bible in a new way. When you read a section of text, especially in the Gospels, take a moment, stop, meditate, ask the Holy Spirit to illumine you with this question. Lord... What commonly held viewpoint are you challenging with your words? And the lie he wants to expose the most is this, that you don't matter to God. And so John three sixteen, and we can debate, did Jesus actually say this or was John summing up what he was hearing Jesus saying. Either way, this was the consistent message of Jesus. For this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. I know all of us were captivated this past week with the goings on in Dallas regarding the trial of Amber Geiger who shot and killed Botham John. I'll talk a little more about that next week. But I know that you probably have heard that after the sentencing, the judge got a Bible from her chamber and gave it to Amber Geiger. And pointed to John 3.16 and said, I want you to write your name where it says whoever. Now, you can debate whether the judge used the proper venue to do that. But what you cannot debate is that what the judge said is true that you have never met a person, no matter what they've done, no matter how guilty they are, that does not matter to God. And this is what Jesus wanted to say over and over, that when you hear nobody cares about me, you have heard a lie from the pit of hell. Jesus came to tell us the truth, and he came to give us the Holy Spirit As kind of an internal lie detector. So that when we walk in step with the Spirit, we begin to discern things that don't sound right. That don't line up with the truth of the kingdom of God. Because as Jesus said in John 8, the truth will set you free. You see, Satan wants to blind so that he can bind. There's an interesting metaphor in 2 Corinthians 4 where Paul says the God of this age has blinded the mind of the unbeliever. And so if Jesus is going to set you free, he's got to fill you with truth. Okay, And so he does that. He exposes the lie so that he can release the captives. And this is the second way that he destroys the work of the devil. He comes to destroy the strongholds that destroy people. And he could do it because he was stronger than the warden. So there was a lot of debate in Jesus' day about his ministry of casting out demons. This is Jesus' own words on what he was doing. He said, if it's by the Spirit of God that I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or again, how could anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he can plunder his house. Jesus said, the only reason I can cast out demons is because my kingdom is stronger than the kingdom I am getting rid of. Now, you just need to know, I believe that demons are real. I've been in too many parts of the world. I've seen too many things to think otherwise. I believe demons are real. I believe they really do oppress people. And I believe Jesus really is stronger. And that the demonic must bow to the spirit of Christ because they recognize a greater throne. One of my favorite stories, a preacher I know tells, is a woman that flew to California to see two old girlfriends. Now this woman was a witch. She practiced in the occult. She did not know that her two girlfriends had become followers of Jesus. To her shock, on Saturday, they insisted that she join them and go to their church. She stayed all night long, came under great conviction of the Holy Spirit, and Saturday uh, Sunday morning was baptized by the pastor. When her boyfriend back home, who was a warlock, a male witch, heard, he got on a flight immediately. Barged Monday morning into the offices of the church, cursing, screaming, demanding to see the pastor to know where the woman was. He said, you can't have that woman. She is Satan's woman. And the pastor, fearing physical violence, gave him the address where she was staying. And as he's stomping out, spewing vulgarities, he turns and says, tell me one thing. Tell me you didn't baptize her. And the pastor said, actually, I baptized her myself myself yesterday morning and all the color left his face and the man said then it's too late I can't touch her now and he flew home you know every week at our church we offer the opportunity to be baptized and I will never understand why people would get up and leave our service before waiting to see if someone is going to do that and here's why Do you understand what's happening at baptism? At baptism, you are witnessing the transfer of allegiance from one kingdom to another. Because every conversion is a power encounter where Satan is obliged to release his hold on somebody's life and acknowledge the superiority of Christ. Satan doesn't want to give that person up. Satan has to give that person up because he's got to bow to a greater king. In fact, I'm going to argue Satan is more aware of what union with Christ means than most Christians are. Romans 6, have you forgotten that when we were joined with Christ Jesus in baptism, we joined him in his death? Now here's what Satan knows happens, even if you don't. We know our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives. We're no longer slaves to sin. For when we died with Christ, we were set free from the power of sin. See, Satan wants you to believe. You have no choice but to resign to your bondage to sin. It it, it could be your constant worrying. It could be your addiction to alcohol or to porn. It could be your temper or your anger or whatever it is. You have no choice but just to tolerate it when the reality is that sin and that addiction and that bondage no longer has any legal claim on you. Because Jesus has picked up the check. Sometimes I'm out to eat. I'll ask the waiter to bring me the check and he or she will walk up and say, well, pastor, someone has already paid for your meal. Now look around. I don't know who it is. I won't know till uh, Jesus comes back because they'll be sitting at the head table with Jesus at the big banquet. That's where you get to sit when you buy the pastor's meal. <laughs> and you understand in that moment, I realize I am under no obligation now. I am free to leave. My debt has been paid. And that's what happened. Listen to Jesus' own words. Now, the time for judgment on this world is come. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. And I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, he's talking about the cross. When I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. You know what he's saying? Is that when I'm on that cross and when I die, every prison door is going to be flung open. And all people will now be free to come and pursue God through me because of what I'm going to do on that cross. And you can believe it's true. Because he didn't stay dead. And the third way he destroyed the devil's work was by disarming death. Now hold up your hand if you've seen a James Bond movie. And don't you dare lie to me in the house of God. Have you seen a James Bond movie? Okay, and every James Bond movie has the same plot. Some maniacal fool has a weapon that he's going to threaten to destroy the world with. And what does James Bond have to do? He's got to go where the enemy is. And he's got to destroy or disarm that weapon. Listen, church, to the word of God from Hebrews 2. Because God's children are human beings. Made of flesh and blood, the Son also became flesh and blood. For only as a human being could he die. And only by dying could he break the power... ...of the devil, who had, please notice past tense, who had the power of death. Only in this way could he set free all who lived their lives as slaves to their fear of dying. Before he could deliver, he had to destroy. So, there's a story of a missionary that worked with a tribe in the jungles of Brazil... An epidemic attacked that tribe, and there was a cure available, but they had to get to an infirmary on the other side of the river. But they believed of the spirits that lived in that river, and they were afraid. The missionary told him how he had crossed the river, but that didn't uh, alleviate their fear. He took them to the waters, and he put his hand in it. He splashed it on his face. It didn't work. And then he jumped into the water. He went under the water. He swam to the other side and stood up with his fist in the air, and they followed him and got their healing Now this world is filled with many versions of truth and there are many politicians and academics and philosophers that will tell you what wisdom is but I got a question when it comes to death who besides Jesus can say follow me Because I've been there. And so, back to John. These Christians are forefathers in the faith in the first century. They had it hard. Rome wanted you to say, Jesus is not Lord before Caesar. They had to decide, is Jesus worth it? Is he worth losing my property, my home, my family, my life? Is Jesus worth it? They needed a fresh picture of Jesus, and they got one in the very first chapter. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as, I were, as if I were dead, but he laid his right hand on me And he said, don't be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I died, but look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and the grave. In every war, there's a battle that turns the tide. When the Allies stormed the beaches of Normandy and established a beachhead and started marching across France, they knew they were going to win the war. It wasn't over. But the outcome had been decided. And when Jesus walked out of that tomb, alive, the outcome of the war was decided. Satan is not yet executed. That's coming. But he is completely defeated. And here's the thing. He knows it. Even as he doesn't want you to know it. He believes it even as he tries to deceive you into not believing it. But you need to call his bluff. He is a defeated enemy. So, I was watching highlights on ESPN some years ago. At that time, the greatest basketball player in the league of the NBA, was Shaquille O'Neal, over seven feet tall, over 300 pounds. If he got the ball down low in the post, he was unstoppable. The only way to defend him was to foul him because he wasn't a good free throw shooter. They called it hack-a-shack. And this particular game, that team was fouling him a lot and he was getting angry. He took his fist and he swung at an opposing player. And when he did, this little guy ran right up to him. Now, Mr. O'Neill had so much more power, so much more fame, so much more status, so much more money. But that little guy had authority. He had the whole league behind him. He told Mr. O'Neill to get off the court, and he did. And the enemy has so much more power. But believer of Jesus, you have so much more authority. The Scripture says in First John, "You belong to God and have defeated them, because a God's spirit who is in you is greater than the devil who is in the world. Jesus came, he accomplished his mission, He destroyed the work of the enemy, so his victory is available and unassailable. It cannot be denied, it cannot be defeated, and you can live in it. And hell can't stop you. Now, it's true. Satan still slithers. But followers of Jesus do not need to live intimidated or incarcerated. We are washed in the blood. We are filled with the Spirit. We are clothed in Christ. And we can do what the Bible tells us to do over and over. We can resist the devil in the name of a greater king. And so... Are you living like the kingdom has come? Way too many Christians live BC, before Christ. They believe in Jesus, but they live like he hadn't come yet. I mentioned last week Booker T. Washington, the great educator. In his autobiography, he tells a great story. See, he was born on a plantation, he was the son of slaves. And every day, long before the sun came up, a rooster would crow, and it was a daily reminder that they were in for another back-breaking day of labor. But then one day, this man came to their plantation. He told them about someone named Abraham Lincoln who had signed a document called an Emancipation Proclamation, and that man told them, you aren't owned by the plantation owner anymore. You're free. Oh, the next morning, young Booker heard that same rooster making a different sound. He looked out the window, and then Mama was chasing that rooster with an axe. And that day, they had fried alarm clock for lunch. Because what you do when you find out that a higher power has set you free is you silence the cackle of the accuser. You can know truth today. You can walk in freedom now. You can receive eternal life immediately. The enemy has been defeated by the one who holds the keys. Are you going to start living like the kingdom has come? Let me pray over you. So, Father, I'm asking your anointing on this message. Not just that we'll agree with it, but that we'll step into it. Because I'm praying over somebody right now, God, who's living a lie. And they need to be illumined by your spirit. I'm preaching to someone right now, God, who's lived too long in bondage to something that has no legal claim over them anymore. I'm praying right now over someone, God, who's in fear. And that fear is robbing them of joy. And so, God, my prayer is not just that we agree with the message. If all we do is come and hear a sermon and agree with it, then we haven't used our time very well. But illumine our minds and our hearts. How am I going to be different because I heard this truth today? How am I going to live into the freedom that Christ has given me? How is next week going to be different Because I believe the kingdom has come. Show us Jesus. And in your name we pray. Amen.